If you're looking for a way to help birds or take your support to the next level, this May, I would love for you to join the Birds Canada Birdathon. It's easy to participate in and helps raise thousands of dollars for bird conservation. Learn more at birdscanada.org slash birdathon. Now let's get to the episode. You're listening to The Warblers, a Birds Canada podcast. I'm Andrea Grass. And I am Andres Jimenez. Join us as we travel on common flight paths with our guests gaining insight and inspiration from the world of birds and bird conservation in Canada. Today we talk with Joe Bidangwat, a young and experienced knowledge keeper for ancestral knowledge, plants, medicine, and language. Among many things, he is from Wikwemikon First Nations on Manitoulin Island, and he talks to us about endangered languages, birds, how they are named in his language, and some of the teachings that they have to offer us. This episode airs in September to honor the first National Truth and Reconciliation Day. Hello, everyone. Welcome to this fall episode. Andrea, how are you? Good. How are you? I am doing well. I'm super excited about today's episode. I'm personally very close to not only the person we're going to talk with, but also to this subject. We're going to be talking about how birds are named and why we should think about who and how birds are named, particularly for indigenous people. We're actually going to be talking about how birds are named in Ojibwe by the Anishinaabe people in Ontario. Yeah, it's a really interesting subject because right now, you know, it's all part of a greater discussion to change bird names. A lot of birds are named after people, you know, historically have some really questionable backgrounds. And it's kind of time, <laughs> understatement <laughs> of the world, right? Uh, it's, it's time to... Yeah, rename those birds. And why not bring Indigenous language into that discussion? Yes, and also we're releasing this episode at the end of September. Fall migration is happening. We get to see a lot many more birds. But also in September the 30th, we celebrate the first ever National Truth and Reconciliation Day in Canada. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it's the perfect time to bring this discussion to the forefront. Yeah, and more than a celebration, we want to use this episode to mark the need to listen to different perspectives and to listen to the perspectives that are coming from the people that have stewarded this land for thousands of years. With that said... This episode is very focused on Ojibwe, Anishinaabe Moen. Even though Ojibwe is a, a widely used regional language from Ontario all the way to the U.S., it's important to remember two things for this episode. The first of all, Canada has a huge diversity of Indigenous people and First Nations, and we hope to have more episodes talking about these other groups and their languages, but also that... Indigenous languages and birds are both in danger of extinction. So, Andreas, why are Indigenous languages at risk of extinction? And, and Andrea, that is incredibly important because in this episode, we're not only talking about birds and we're not only talking with someone from a First Nation, but we're mostly talking about language. And it's because language is in danger of extinction in Canada. As of 2011, just 15% of Indigenous people reported speaking Indigenous languages as their mother tongue. And that is down 87% as of half century earlier. And Anishinaabe Moen is one of the 32 languages in Canada that is super endangered. There's only 1,200 speakers 
remaining with an average of 55 years old. This means that these speakers will not only leave this land with their language, but also with the bird knowledge that they have, because some speakers know the language and some knowledge keepers know the birds. And that doesn't always match. That's why this episode today is going to be so much more special, because we are speaking with Joe Padonqua, who is an Ojibwe knowledge keeper. He's learning the Anishinaabemowin language, and he's just got so many interesting stories to share and such an incredible amount of knowledge. In fact, Joe's main area of interest, and he's going to tell us all about himself, is medicine, but he has found a way to connect it with birds. Joe, it's such a great pleasure to have you here. Welcome. Birds have a, such a powerful connection to Indigenous people that today we dedicate our episode to birds. Can you pronounce that for me, the, the title of the episode, Joe? Oh, yeah. Beneshiak. Beneshiak. And what would that mean? Yeah, it's just birds. Beneshi is the is just the way that we describe like the whole family of birds is just Beneshi. And so Beneshi, you just add that plural suffix at the end. Yeah, well, let's do that, Joe. Before we get too into the episode, could you tell us about yourself? I'm Joe Pitawanakut. I'm from Wikwemkong on Manitoulin Island. That's where I was born and raised and probably about 11, 12 years ago or something. I met my wife and we spent a lot of time with my grandma and we, yeah, just learned about we learned about how we use plants as medicine. So spending all that time with my grandma and then all that time with my wife out on the land and then that really quickly turned into spending all of our time in indigenous communities and different institutions teaching about plant-based medicine. And so that's pretty well where I'm at and all I, all I do now, <laughs> everything is uh, online now. But, um, but yeah, that's kind of just me in a nutshell. I really just like Plants. <laughs> Plants and birds, of course. We've uh, definitely getting into birds, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I had to because I realized like just in order for me to kind of level up my knowledge of plants or plant-based medicine, I, I have to learn about everything. I have to learn about the insects. I have to learn about birds and the different soils and ecosystems and just kind of have to make sure that be, in order to understand one thing, you kind of have to understand how it interacts with everything. And so learning about birds was initially just to kind of level up my plant medicine knowledge. And <laughs> and then I just got real obsessed. Because mm -hmm, it's all connected, right? On that note, how do you acknowledge the land? By sharing proper knowledge, how to engage with the land, or, or I guess I could say knowledge, how to properly engage in the land. I think that that is the most satisfying sort of acknowledgement that, that we can have because in the Anishinaabe language, there's a life that this land is capable of providing the people who are living here. And that life we, we would call which means a good life. And the root word to describe a good life is Awatsuin, and that translates to knowledge. And so just the knowledge, the idea that knowledge is necessary to be able to live the life that this land is capable of providing you is such a fascinating idea. And any effort that goes to share Indigenous knowledge gets the people who are living here that much closer to being able to live the life that this land is able to provide us, which is Mnubamadzuin. So understanding and sharing of that type of knowledge is, I think, one of my favorite ways 
just to accomplish it, land acknowledgement, which is why I say just, yeah, just things like this, what you guys are doing. This is really incredible. Wow, Joe, that is not only powerful, but so down to the land. And with that said, we will do our own acknowledgement. We're going to do it for Toronto and we're going to acknowledge that Toronto is situated on indigenous land and that it's situated on the land of the dish with one spoon territory. And as Joe said, it's important for us to know where we are at and that this is the traditional territory of the Haudenosaunee Confederacy, the Wendat and the Mississaugas of the Credit First Nations, and that they have been stewarding for the land and the birds that have lived here long before we have been. We acknowledge that this land is covered as part of the Treaty 13 with the Mississaugas of the Credit and Birds Canada and the work we do to protect birds could not have happened if these indigenous nations wouldn't have been on the land before we did. With that said, Joe, what do birds mean for you and how did you get into them? Well, yeah, kind of like what I was saying earlier, it just happened. I, I was just looking to level up my plant knowledge and that led me to understanding that I need to focus on understanding more about birds and so I just started learning about them are they ever a captivating creature I so quickly became obsessed with especially the sounds that they have their all of the different calls and voices songs that they have a lot of kind of birding by ear principles Andrea Joe says that he's starting to learn about birds but he hasn't started to learn about birds last time I went with him um Joe are you recording from Peterborough yeah last time that we went together to Peterborough he was not only showing me the scats of bears and moons that I really wanted to see but then he was like identifying everything by ear but also telling me where all the birds were coming from where they were going and what they were doing not only from his <laughs> perspective <laughs> but also you know from all the calls I was like yeah, Joe, you're not learning this, man. You kind of know it. <laughs> That's a pretty incredible base of knowledge. Yeah, to be able to hear and identify by sound is... That's big. <laughs> yeah, man. Yeah. And not everyone can do that. And for all of our audience, and to kind of set the ground for this conversation, Joe's main topic, as he said before, is medicine. What is medicine for you, Joe? It's just kind of medicine knowledge. We would say, that's medicine knowledge. And that's just a necessary knowledge that you need to be able to live in this part of the world. I mean, I mean, now we are living inside of a system that's just on top of Ontario. And, you know, when we get sick or injured, we go to the hospital and then we go to shoppers to get the medication that we need. But the reason why we're inside of this system on top of Ontario is because we don't have the knowledge that's required to be able to go to the land when you are sick or injured and so that's my main job is to give uh, provide the opportunities the knowledge to be able to when you're sick or injured to go to the land and more often than not when you're able to do that you're able to accomplish a, a really amazing healthcare. that's super interesting and how did you go from your interest and knowledge in medicine to birds and recovering bird names i think the main reason why you need to learn about birds if you're wanting to learn about medicine is that it makes finding medicine a lot easier when you know and understand the bird behavior and the songs 
birding by ear principles, then you're able to find really niche ecosystems where these medicines are growing. And so the birds are always telling you where everything is. For me too, like I hate bears. Like I know Andres, like this is his his dream is to meet a bear. It's it's not. It can't be. I have the most horrible experiences with bears. I'm terrified. So you know, getting used to the the way that birds acknowledge other all of the other creatures in the in the forest, we are able to know where everything is and how far away it is without seeing it. It also makes hunting more of a successful experience, I guess, when you're able to understand all of the what the birds are saying. Okay, so you have been looking for medicines, for those that are listening. Um, Joe, medicines will be plants, right? You've been looking for plants, and that took you into exploring birds, and birds take you to find the medicine. Can you give us an example of that? Yeah, and my favorite, absolute favorite time that I, I actually, okay, so I um, wanted to learn more about birds. And so I got all of these digital copies of, I think one of them was called Macaulay's Library. It was just like a, a gigabyte of audio files of all of the different warblers, of all of the different birds. And then this woman would just say like, Prairie Warbler 1. And then the song would play. And because like we're traveling from indigenous community to institution all over Ontario. I'm in the car for like 10 hours sometimes. And then sometimes we're going in one week, we could travel in a week, 50 hours in a vehicle just horrible for my physical health, but 50 hours in a car by myself playing these audio files. I, that's how I got, that's how I got, uh, I remember ordering like coffee from my window and then, and there's bird sounds in the car and it felt kind of weird sometimes, but I, I did that for like an entire winter in the fall I started. So I get like really reminiscent of those feelings right now when medicine harvesting is slowing down. That's when, and our community work really amps up in September. So I remember getting these files and just cruising around all over Ontario, listening and studying these sounds. And, and then it came into fruition in Chimnasing, which is an island in Georgian Bay. And we were there. I, I've had a constant presence in Chimnasing for like five years. And this island is so full of the most amazing medicine. that They're really capable of a lot there. And I, I love it. But one thing kept bugging me is they wanted to find this one medicine. We call it Mukakim Das. That's pitcher plant or Cerasea purpurea. We use those roots to treat sciatica. And so they really, really wanted it. There's a lot of back pain in that community, I guess, for whatever reason. And so we needed to find it. And I said, you know what? It's not, it's not really here. In order to find that plant, you know, you got to go to like a bog, a sphagnum bog where there's stagnant water, there's thick moss and cranberries and Labrador tea and black spruce trees. And, and they said, we do have that here. Some of their elders were like, we do have that here. And they gestured towards a small part of the island. And they would say, it's like the size of this room, which was like, you know, a big bedroom size. Like it wasn't, it, they said it's a really small sort of micro ecosystem and it's in and they would gesture to this massive area so i spent i spent three years with this community they uh, to trying to find this place it was just unsuccessful the only thing that i did different one year is that i spent the entire winter really studying bird sounds and behavior and then i get to the island in the spring and here we are walking and they made us go look for these pitcher plants again and so i'm i'm traveling around and, and like uh, we're not gonna find we're 
we're bushwhacking and it's the mosquitoes there are insane. So it was very uncomfortable. And then I heard northern water thrush. probably one of my favorite warblers, but I heard the northern water thrush and understanding that its behavior is to nest, sing, and get the food that it needs in an area where there is stagnant water is something that's very characteristic of the northern water thrush. So when I heard it sing, I knew what it was looking at when it was singing, which was the stagnant water. And I thought, man, if that is a bog where it's singing from, because it was quite a ways away. So I played the audio file on my phone for the northern water thrush to the kids. And I said, listen to the sound of that bird. And then they locked into it when it sang from inside the bush, far inside the forest, they heard it sing. And I said, Go get that bird. Go find that bird. It'll take you right to that swamp. And then the kids just flooded into the forest trying to find where that bird was singing from. And then we just hear screaming from the forest. They say, there's moss. There's water. There's Labrador tea. And then one of the kids yells, there's pitchers. And then all these, like, I was mostly with older women. So all these real cute little old ladies start flooding into the forest because they want to go and pick that medicine. But the bird took us right there. And these kids thought I was like a wizard magician because... <laughs> and so like, yeah, you know what? If you're standing in the middle of a forest and you're just listening to all of the sounds, listening to all of the birds, they're telling you where everything is. They're telling you which direction they're going in. They're giving you all of that information. And we need to be able to tap into that. And when we can, it makes everything much more efficient. My Worst, the stereotype that I hate the most, I guess, is when Indigenous people are referred to as survivalists or professional backpackers or something like this, you know? And it's like, man, living here is very easy when you know how to live here. You could be standing in the middle of the forest with your eyes closed and you'll know where everything is just by, you know, with that bird knowledge. And so it just gets us closer to realizing that we were not just living here surviving, that we had a really incredible knowledge that we were in constant engagement with that allowed us to live a simple, easy and very full good life. I absolutely love that story. We'll be right back. The Warblers is supported by Feather Friendly. Birds can't see glass and millions die each year because of window collisions. You can save dozens of birds by treating your windows with Feather Friendly's do-it-yourself kit or their commercial solution for large projects. The markers are easy to apply and they work. You can also double your impact by using the code BIRDSCANADA and Feather Friendly will make a donation to support bird conservation. Keep birds singing. Treat your windows with Feather Friendly. Visit featherfriendly.com. Joe, could you give us some examples of how birds are linked to the Anishinaabe people and their culture specifically? Yeah. So, you know what? Birds have so much to be able to share with us. I mean, like I always say, even when we're learning about medicine, we're learning about medicine. It's not just that plants our medicine and you're just kind of walking through the forest and you're learning that this plant is this medicine, this plant helps with this part of your body, this does that and that does it. There's so much that you could learn from plants. You could learn the way that these plants have affected history. Uh, you could learn about how plants are really, really good vehicles to be able to learning about language, to be learning about food and the culinary art of Anishinaabe. So it's like the same thing with birds and bird knowledge is that there's so much that you could learn 
learn from birds. It's not just, you know, this bird has this name and or this bird is telling you where this thing is and what's happening. I think that there's yeah, lots that you could learn from birds. They're really important in our clan systems, their behaviors. The way that I like to explain this is that everything in the natural world, the way that I like to think about it is that it is communicating with you. And when you're walking through the, so this is the same with plants and birds, is that they're all communicating with you. They're all trying to talk to you. And the way that they do this is they have significant features. They have things that they do that nothing else does. They have something that makes them unique, something that separates them from every other creature, living thing in the natural world. And when you could identify what that uniqueness is, what that significant feature is, then then that is what that creature is using to be able to communicate to you. Uh, so they're communicating to you via their uniqueness, you know, and even in that sense, it doesn't make it much more different than people. But when you could learn what makes them special, then it's embedded within that identity or that significance is a teaching that they have. So every bird has a teaching to be able to share with you that gives you the ability to live a better life. Joe, thank you for that. It's important to listen to the messages from the land that birds bring. And with that in mind, this episode was born in a rock in Peterborough, just next to a skink and a blue-spotted salamander, when you told me <laughs> that you had been finding out about bird names in Ojibwe and Ishnabimowin for a long time, maybe seven years, and that you had asked many, many people if they knew bird names and or what did they know about this name? I want to ask you, what have you found out when it comes to how birds are named in Ojibwe? Yeah, I found more mysteries than anything. So it's really cool. Yeah, so I just spent years going from community to community teaching about medicine. And because I became so obsessed with birds, I, it became like a research project personally. And everywhere I would go to the far north, remote fly-in indigenous communities or in southwestern Ontario, everywhere that I went, I always asked if there was anybody that they knew that they could invite to the session to learn about medicine who is known for their bird knowledge. Because my hope was that I can sort of utilize my work with plant-based medicine as a vehicle to be able to learn as much about bird names as possible to help recapture and regather the names of all of the birds and hopefully consolidate those one day into a resource uh, for kids. Because I see lots of fantastic resources being made to be able to learn and identify birds. Uh, like I have a deck of cards <laughs> that I play cards like crazy eights with my daughter it helps her so much to remember the english names of birds and i'm thinking like man if we had a a resource for people to learn about nishaba names too that would be really nice to see i spent so long trying to gather as many names as i could just putting it in, into my phone and I, I really quickly realized that this little niche of nishaba of my language is really really hard to find my favorite family of birds by far are warblers and I have yet to confirm even one Nishnaba name of one species of 
warbler. So that's been really just gut-wrenching realization for me. The realization is like a really way to identify yeah, a need. That's the first step with everything, with plants, with medicine, with mammals and hunting and trapping and fishing. And the first thing that you do when you meet anybody for the first time is you ask what your name is. You don't meet somebody like in the subway or on the TTC or something and, and just start asking a whole bunch of like detailed questions about that person. The first thing that you ask, you say hi and you say, oh, what's your name? You know, where did you go to school? What are you an expert in? What do you love doing? What's a gift that you have to be able to share? And that same process should be the same for every other living thing, like birds. The first thing that we should do is learn what their names are, and then we could learn what they do, what they're an expert in, what gifts that they have to be able to share. And then we could be engaged in a, a relationship with uh, these creatures. And I'm still on step number one, which is learning the names. <laughs> How are names built in Anishinaabemowin? What do the names tell you? So in Nishnaba, it's super fun because in our language, every sound means something. Every sound does something different to a word. And something really interesting, just kind of looking at birds specifically, is they have they have names. Like one of my favorite teachers to be able to explain this would be a, a, like an American bittern. We call those moshk oseh. That's its name, Moshk Ose. And there's a small one too. The least bittern is Zao Moshk Ose because they are more yellow. Zao is yellow. So Zao Moshk Ose. But these bitterns, what you hear inside of that name that we use to call upon a bittern, Moshk Ose, that's like onomatopoeia. And so you hear Moshk Ose. Like the sound that the bird makes is embedded into the name that we used to call upon this bird. And so it's just like, oh, maybe that's what all these Nishnabe do is they just use their mouth to say what the bird says. And then that's what they call it. And then, oh, call it a day. You know, super easy. It's just all automatopoeia. But it's not that simple because moshk oseh, because every sound in that word means something and does something, there's a really deep meaning embedded into that name. It's not just automatopoeia. Like moshk oseh is talking mainly about the ecosystem that that bird lives in, which is like a tall grass, tall grass meadow is what we, we would call that moshkosneing. So you hear moshk oseh inside of the tall grass meadow, because the ecosystem that this bird is very dominant in. This is the same for lots of other creatures and beings that live inside of that tall grass meadow. Like you have moshk opin, that's a, a plant that has a really starchy root that you could use pin is a potato. And so moshk opin is the potato of the tall grass meadow. And that would be a uh, wood lily. Wood lilies have these uh, really starchy roots and that, that you can eat or we can sometimes use them as medicine too. Like some of my favorite is moshk o, that's an elk. And so moshk o is dominant in the, uh, in that ecosystem. And so, um, that's where the elk loves to be. Uh, you hear it in, there's a really famous flower that lives inside of that tall grass meadow as well. That flower, we call it mushk oawis. That's uh, wild bergamot or monarda fistulosa. And then even within that, like there's a really special connection or relationship between all of these uh, different creatures that are named after that ecosystem, like mushk and elk, the uh, bergamot 
and the elk have a really special relationship. It is used, elk used to be from, from here, uh, or living here, it used to separate, you know, white-tailed deer populations from moose populations, but all the elk were, were killed because they have teeth that are made of ivory. So they wanted to make cufflinks. And so all elk were killed. Now they only live down in the States. But if you consult with that knowledge down in the States, what do they call bergamot? Is called elk medicine. That's what, that's what it translates to. And just every other language, same thing with Anishinaabe. So we walk past bergamot and we call that elk medicine. Elk have a really special relationship to that plant. And we actually manipulate or take advantage of that animal's connection to this plant. It's a process that we call mijamakajiga to take advantage of their relationship to this, uh, food source. And so. We use it in our smoke medicine. And when you use it in your smoke medicine, it doesn't hide your human smell. But what it does is it, is it tricks that animal into thinking that that food is there, that moshkoawis, that bergamot is there. And so they'll let their guard down and they'll come a little bit closer to you a little bit more recklessly, even though they could smell a human smell. But the drive to connect with that medicine plant is so strong that they'll continue to take steps towards you. And so you take advantage of their connection to their medicines. And so all that, just to say that moshkose, uh, the way that we call a bittern, is not just as simple as onomatopoeia. There is a really deep connections, relationships, and teachings that you can understand just by learning the name. There's a lot of knowledge and taxonomy and understanding built into that name that is far beyond just onomatopoeia. Yeah, that's that's really, really interesting to know that it goes that deep and just how connected everything is. I'd love to hear a few more examples of other other bird names. So how about the rail? This is one of my favorites. This is what everybody's doing right now is uh, harvesting wild rice. So sometimes the names of birds are a gesture to their function in the ecosystem that they live in. With bittern would be like a gesture to the ecosystem that it lives in, but sometimes to a specific function or role that it has. So rails we'll call no min ke shi. No min is wild rice. And so no min ke is to go and pick wild rice and no minkeshi is the bird that harvests wild rice. If you observe that bird's behavior, I had the opportunity of finally being able to check out a Sora here in Peterborough, just down the road where I was teaching my daughter how to ride a bike. I took off her training wheels and we were cruising down this gravel road and in the cabin swamp. There was just Soras who were just yelling away. So if we observe Sora behavior in the natural world, they, they make such a mess. They living in the wild rice, well, in cattails and things like that, but just, you know, picturing them in the wild rice, the way they run around on the ecosystem that they live in, the big mess that they make, you could just watch the wild rice uh, flying off all of the plants. And so their responsibility in that ecosystem is you could see that they're no minkeshi. They're the ones that are they're hitting all this wild rice and and very responsible for planting it. And so yeah, sometimes it's just observing that creature's ecological function or role that they have within that whatever niche they're occupying. And so we acknowledge that in that identity in their name. That's so cool. So rails are named essentially for making rice, helping to spread rice. Yeah. Uh, very cool. Could you tell us about the nuthatch? Oh yeah, nuthatch. So this is a common last name. One of the things that we do, which is interesting, you know, I, we have this really interesting way of naming our own people, like uh, kids, you know, when your kid is born, you observe what's happening in that snapshot of a moment. And that's what that person is going to be named. 
And that practice still exists today. I went up to fly-in community. There was Beyonce's. And I was like, there's just a lot of Beyonce's in this small community. And they were like, yeah, I was playing on the radio when she was born. (laughs) (laughs) And then uh, there was another one. Like, I thought, I thought, wow, this kid is actually named Cal Al. And they watched Smallville, the Smallville finale there when when that baby was born. And so, so I guess like the way that this happened, you know, before Netflix and Smallville and Beyonce, we have Nishnaba giving birth to children in the natural world and you hear a lot of bird names are captured in that naming process and so Bipigwe was one that we hear quite often still today now it's carried as a last name so now it's an inherited name because a distant ancestor when that person was being born there was a nuthatch singing at that birth and so that's what that kid was named was nuthatch <laughs> Bipigwe and so yeah you hear a lot of last names uh, and when you when you ask what does your last name mean they'll tell you it's a bird. And then, so that's how I actually gathered a lot of these bird names is just asking what people's last names mean. <laughs> but anyways, that's describing what that bird does. If you observe a nuthatch, one thing that makes them different than all of the other birds is they make a huge mess too. And they're climbing up and down the tree. They peel off and break up the bark that's on the tree. Like if you watch a warbler, they just dance around. They're just eating, you know, in a minute they have like, they ate like 40 insects. But when you watch a nuthatch, they're real clumsy. Monkey, their claws are and beak are ripping off flakes of bark and so you're trying to observe them underneath the tree and things are falling in your eye and you're like man this bird is that's what it does that's different than everybody else it makes a huge mess it's constantly peeling bark off little pieces of bark off and those are falling down in that separation of all of the bark from the tree. That's what, that's basically what bipigwe means is all of that bark is, is being separated from where it should be. So bipi, that's what, that's kind of what that is describing. Like even your lungs are called bipisde. That is, you know, what is responsible for the gas exchange from the separation of gases that happen inside of your lungs. Or like bipigomaki is a toad. Because there are warts on that frog, the separations of skin, that's what make that creature unique. Or the, the blisters on uh, is uh, elderberry. Elderberries will have these big, where the bark is separated from the tree to make these big blister looking things. So BP is when something is being separated from where it should be. And then even just with that too, like because he's separating all of the bark off of the tree, everywhere that it goes, making a big mess. There's another bird, Kestrel with the fancy face. They... Uh-huh. Uh, uh, we call those bipigwean. When you're watching kestrels, what they do is uh, in midair, they'll catch their prey. They accept They love eating smaller birds. And so when they catch a bird in the air, they will sever the spine. They'll separate the neck, break the bird's neck in, in midair before, like first thing that they do, separate the neck. And so that's really cool. <laughs> a little morbid, but it's still cool. But anyways, that's why we call them bipigwean. Because when you add that suffix at the end, bipigwean, that means something is finished finished so um <laughs> the bird so is that finished <laughs> bird is finished yeah <laughs> there's a separation that results in the end of all these little birds lives and so that's what we named them wow okay so joe with the examples you've given us we i'm starting to get a sense that the way you named bird in ojibwe was linked to either the role these birds were playing in the ecosystem or an onomatopoeic link that is deeper to explain which ecosystem they belong to, like the example you gave us with the bittern. Mm -hmm. And so 
it seems to me, and correct me if I'm wrong, that by recovering these names, you're not only recovering culture, but you're recovering ecological knowledge. Uh, for sure. Yeah, the connections and relationships. Well, I mean, like there's species at risk, right? One of the biggest issues with species at risk is with the species that is at risk, the attempt in gathering enough data to recover the species or give it a chance is more often than not the limiting factor. That's the bottleneck is that we are not able to gather enough data quickly enough to save the species, to do what we can to save the species. Understanding the connections that birds have with other plants and with other animals makes the opportunity, enhances the opportunity to collect appropriate amounts of data. And so I see that a really pragmatic purpose for recovering Anishinaabe knowledge is to know what these connections and relationships are, to be responsible in a more successful data collection methods in the attempt to recover species at risk just as one example. But yeah, totally. They're learning the names of these birds, plants, and everything. Understanding that Anishinaabe context gives us that opportunity to live a good life. So what do you think of the current movement to change bird names, make bird names for birds? So in my honest opinion, I think that it doesn't have to be like learning Anishinaabe names of birds and plants uh, to be front and center and changing the taxonomy that the system that is used now and replacing it with something more culturally appropriate. I don't know if that's like the answer. I know that's what a lot of people would naturally think should be what happens. So like I always picture going through a resource and seeing a bird resource, like a field guide, and seeing the scientific taxonomy, seeing the English names, and then also seeing the Anishinaabe names and just being included and understand, leaving it to like the individual to utilize that resource for what they need it to be for. Because the scientific taxonomy exists for a reason and for proper identification of a species. And then common names as well have really important, uh, sometimes distinguishing features as well. Or a lot of the common names have links to behaviors and, you know, more understanding of that creature. And then the Anishinaabe name as well it provides the opportunity to learn ecological function, to learn indigenous language of this territory. So I, I'm just happy with the consideration and opportunity for it to be included. Yeah, absolutely. I think it'd be great to have more knowledge of Indigenous bird names as we move forward. It's hard because there's so many languages across Canada. I work primarily with the piping plover in Ontario, but they also breed in Atlantic Canada and they breed in Saskatchewan and Manitoba. And, you know, I'd be actually really curious if anyone's listening and they know any of the indigenous names for a piping plover, please reach out. You know, I'd love to expand that knowledge and just start having the discussion more. Yeah, totally. Um, Mishnaba is, 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 is pretty, pretty neat too, because it's a, it's a very, uh, um, the, the way that it's seen as like, it, it was the, uh, um, it was like the English of North America. Um, so Cree is basically the same. It's a, like Algonquin dialect of language extends into the tropics, into the tundra, all the way out east and a fair ways away out west, with the exception of just the coast. So like Anishinaabe language is, was pretty universal pre-contact. So I mean, there's that as well. But yeah, learning all of the different names of birds in other languages. I, I went out east. I got to see like I was like, there's this Plovers all over the place over there. <laughs> it's like a rare bird <laughs> where I'm from. It was like a chickadee out there. Just like they were everywhere. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> we'll be right back. The Warblers is a podcast of Birds Canada. 
Our goal is to bring you the information you need to discover, enjoy, and protect birds. If you like what you hear, please subscribe, leave a review, and share this podcast with everyone you know. Birds Canada relies on the support of donors like you. To learn more or to make a donation, visit birdscanada.org. And if you give, please note the podcast in the comment box. Joe, so I gather from you that the sole act of putting the Indigenous name there so people could deepen their knowledge. And this is interesting because it matches with what I know from your personality and you trying to weave scientific knowledge with Indigenous knowledge. I gather that if we start including that information, it will enrich everyone's experience and then people can choose where to deepen their knowledge. But it makes mm -hmm. me think of the change from Wasaka Jack to Canada Jay. Wasaka Jack was never the official name. It used to be Grey Jay and then it got changed to Canada Jay. But we missed an opportunity of keeping one indigenous name on the Canada J. And when it comes to this, it makes me think when in the coming years, when it comes to how we name and understand birds, what would you like it to happen? I just want to see a recovery, at least of the names of all of these different birds, just to kind of use as an opportunity to be able to understand that this is a really important process and just to get you know, general populations involved and beginning good relationships with indigenous communities and the knowledge within them to be responsible for the recapture and regathering of all of these different names. And then from there, we can understand the gifts that those birds have to be able to share with us that, that get us closer to living a, a good life. Wow. Thank you so much, Joe. You have taught me a lot throughout this episode. I'm really excited to share it with people. Before we go, could you tell folks where they might connect with you, how they might access your services as an educator? Yeah, sweet. This is super cool. I'm really happy to be able to share with everybody, just uh, kind of get a perk our interest into the importance of this process. But yeah, um, like I said earlier, I'm mostly uh, teaching about plant-based medicine, about how to properly engage in a reciprocal relationship with like over 180 different species of plants, significant medicinal plant species. So we do that through Creator's Garden is our uh, small business. Uh, so you could find Creators Garden on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, Patreon, etc. <laughs> Joe, how do you pronounce a bald eagle's name? Mgeze. Okay, so people, we're going to have the story of Mgeze for our Minnesota next in a couple of weeks after this episode airs. Don't miss out on it. Joe, thank you so much for being with us today. Sweet, that was so cool. Thank you guys so much. <laughs> Thanks, right. Joe. The Warblers is produced by Andres Jiménez, Jody Allaire, Andrea Gress, Ruth Friendship Keller, and Kate Dolglish. This episode was edited and engineered by Katie Jack, with the music by Jose Mora and art by Alex Nico. Until next time, keep burning. <laughs>